0: The son praying to the father with bold request of him, with such clarity and confidence. And there is no other prayer like it in all of scripture. We hear him praying for himself. We hear him praying for his apostles. And we hear him praying for us. We hear him pray with all the certainty of life's work and purpose here, of all of his life and purpose here, and our life and purpose here. We hear him pray with the fullness of all that he was, with the understanding of who he was, who God was, and the fullness of what he prayed that would be true of us. Jesus understood what he was about, the role he had to fulfill, the work he had to do, and the people that God had given to him. In this prayer, you hear the heart of God. And we are privy to it because Jesus prayed it out loud to his Father in the presence of his disciples, and the Apostle John, it down under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. This prayer took place at the end of the upper room discourse before our Lord and just before he was betrayed. Jesus spent quite a bit of focused time with his disciples on the eve of which he was betrayed in the upper room, taking of the Passover, his supper that he gave to them as himself in bread and wine. He had spent three years preparing them, and now here was the time that they would face their greatest crisis in life at his climax of his earthly life, where he would be glorified in death. And he prepared them for this crisis by teaching them about the Trinity. True life with the Trinity. It is at the end of this upper room discourse of which the Apostle John has given us only the only account of, and which he has taken up many chapters of his gospel to reveal, that Jesus closes with this tremendous prayer. And the first thing about life that we should note from this prayer is the glory of God. Jesus prays that heavenly glory would be fulfilled on the earth. We consider the terms glory. We often use it. We've been catechized here When we hear the word why, we automatically can jump to the answer, for God's glory. Why does this happen? For God's glory. Why do we do this? For God's glory. But what do we mean by that? I'm afraid it's become somewhat of an abstract, kind of ethereal, intangible, and often misunderstood cliche that we throw out but never truly understand or live. Jesus speaks of glory eight times in this particular chapter, five of which are in the opening five verses of his prayer. But if we are to live for the glory of God, shouldn't we know a little bit about what it is? What is God's glory? What is it all about? And... It's not really easy to define, and therein lies the problem. But let's scratch the surface a little bit as we begin to understand if we're to live for His glory, what does it mean? We prayed it already this morning in a, in a different way, but we prayed it nonetheless. On the one hand, God's glory is His unique excellence, Unique means one of a kind. We overuse that word oftentimes when we mean something rare. But unique means one of a kind. There's nothing else like it. Never has been nor will be. It is unique. God is unique. He's one of a kind. And there's something about his glory that identifies his uniqueness. We get a picture of that in Isaiah 6 when the prophet, and through the prophet's words, we hear the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. There's an aspect of God's holiness that while we think of holiness as a a separation from sin and a moral holiness, there is something that is unique to God that nothing else, no one else has. It's unique to his own holiness, and that is he is separate from all of his creation. He is holy in a way that none of us can be. It's his uniqueness. But when we think of God's glory as his unique excellence, the term excellence then would mean surpassing all others in every way. All of those attributes, all of those communicable attributes perhaps we can say God excels anything else like it that we know. We are made in his image, and therefore we do have his communicable attributes, those attributes that he has decided to communicate to us in his likeness. Not all of his attributes, but some of them. And so there is a uniqueness of God, an excellence where he excels everything else that we can comprehend or even that we know. And there's a sense also that as we see God's holiness thinking about his unique excellence, we think of and often even use the term glory as kind of a place. A place where God dwells, where Jesus left, where he was returning. But God's glory is not really a place. We think in terms of time and spatial dimensions because we are products and creatures of that, but God is not. God's glory is his presence that displays the splendor of his unique excellence. Every definition, by the way, I'm going to give you of glory is going to fall way short of what it actually is, but if I can at least give you a little bit of something of what it contains, we will begin to begin to understand what it means to live for it. It is... His presence that is displayed in the splendor, uniqueness of His excellence. It includes, but it is not limited to, His perfections, the the display of His unique perfections and all the majesty and glory light that emanates from His presence, his, His love, which excels all loves, And anything that we actually can ever measure against it, his mercy, his truth, his compassion, his justice, his holiness, his beauty, his anger, his grace, his forgiveness, his gentleness, his tenderness. His works of creation, his works of government, his works of of his continued sovereignty of providence and guiding all the affairs of which he has created to his perfect, glorious end. His redemption of his people, fallen into sin. While a mystical and abstract concept, think about God's glory as His presence with the display of all of His perfections. This light, majestic, which just has all of His perfections, unique unto God, but far excels anything that we have ever comprehended. But we get a glimpse. That's why Moses could only see the backside. Jesus prays here in this prayer for the big picture. What's going on here on earth is about bringing heaven's glory upon it. That's the big picture. You've got to get the big picture. You have to understand the big picture about what's going on here and why God came here and why Jesus became flesh here, why he leaves us here. And why, while in the end, heaven comes down here, it's the big picture. And we have to not only understand the big picture, but we have to be a part of this and see this in our own life decisions, in all of our activity. It's about bringing heaven's glory down to the earth. This is the big picture of what's going on here. This is what it's all about. This is what we pray for when we say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring it down here and show your glory and manifest Your hallowness here. This is the big picture of what's going on here. This is what we're all about. This is why you have been created. Your life's purpose can be summed up in just this way, that your purpose in life is to bring heaven's glory down to the earth in and through every life situation. This is what Jesus did, and as Paul demonstrates it in Philippians 2, which we call the kenosis passage, where Jesus emptied himself. He poured himself out of glory into humanity upon this fallen world. Why did he do that? to the glory of God the Father. Why will every knee on this earth then bow to the lordship and sovereignty of Jesus Christ to do that, to the glory of God the Father, bringing heaven's glory here? Jesus came here and he suffered to the glory of God even in the likeness of Isaiah 53 when it says, and it pleased God to afflict him. He died for the glory of God. This was the high watermark of his earthly life where he, he died upon the cross and then God would raise him up because he was pleased with his life for what he has done, bringing God's glory down to this earth. Bringing the light of heaven into this dark place so that the presence of God, with all of his splendor and unique excellence, would be made known. Jesus spoke of and even prayed about this time of his life of which he was preparing his disciples for and their greatest crisis where they would be dispersed for a season as the climax of his earthly life. To Jesus, the cross was the glory of his earthly life and it is the glory of eternal life. Your irony that is for us is that it is in death where God was glorified. And that is a transcendent principle that it is in death that great ones on earth here find their glory. Which brings us to another point in which Jesus is bringing out in this prayer, even the way he prayed for us way back then, he could see a picture that far surpassed the present time. Because God's grand scheme transcends the ages and it transcends every lifespan that a human can live. You have to see the big picture. What I mean by this is that no human will ever experience God's plan being completed in his or her own lifespan here. We have to come to terms with that. This did not even happen with Jesus's life span here. And while Jesus completed his particular work here, God's plan continues to this day here. And that is why he leaves his people in the world here, though they are not of the world here. It's vastly important to understand something about your life and achievement. We often feel let down or disappointed or crushed when our dreams here are not fulfilled in this life. We carry with us by divine design a sense of achievement or a need for achievement. And the sense of achievement is a function of work, which is a good thing. Work and achievement are good things. But while we carry this sense of achievement with us, we also are bearers of of the problems with achievement. That's why so many earthly achievements, or what we call successes, are maligned with sinful character. And this is what the Apostle John was referring to in his little epistle that he wrote later when he says in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes... And the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. This phrase, the pride of life, that John refers to is the desire for experience and achievement apart from heavenly glory. Earthly achievement, worldly successes, the the desire to experience experiences for the sake of experience's sake, the, the bucket lists, if you will. This is rampant in our society, whether it be pursuit of some gold medal in an Olympic sport, or some position or status in life, or some form of achievement or goal that is an end unto itself with no higher purpose. It is why people get very depressed when they miss or fail a goal or objective that they had hoped to achieve in this life. It's also why they get very depressed when they do achieve those goals that they set out for in this life. It's not surprising that former presidents and Olympic gold medalists often struggle with depression and even suicide once their time in the limelight is over. Michael Phelps, who the name probably rings familiar to your ears, who is Known for winning some of the most Olympic gold medals of anyone who's ever lived, who won the most and carries the record for winning the most Olympic gold medals in in swimming, and has spanned four particular Olympic games over 16 years, was suicidal after his achievements. So you have to see the big picture of life in order to make sense of it, and you're going to have to understand and interpret that the achievements that you're longing for that will bring fulfillment will not happen in this lifespan of yours. It's not designed to. The big picture here includes heaven's glory here on the earth, and you have a part of that God has brought you into a collaborative work in which you have been invited to then live your life for his glory here, which is a great privilege. It includes the bigger picture of what's going on here than what's merely happening in the moment of your lifespan, which is but a breath. Now, let me be clear. There's no no problem in pursuing an Olympic gold medal in a sport if the purpose is higher than earthly achievement. Eric Lydell is an example. Lydell was a Scottish man who was born in China to Chinese missionaries. He returned to Scotland and went to school, and then the College of, University of Edinburgh, where sports became a very big part of his university life, to the extent that he became one of the fastest runners on the earth. In 1924, he went to the Olympic Games in Paris, His main event, which the world was watching, was the 100-meter event. But the heat races for that event would take place on the Lord's Day. And Eric would not run on the Sabbath. So he was disqualified from his main event. It is this one thing that Lydell is most famous for. This is where he found his glory. This is where he glorified his Savior. Oh, he did compete in the 400 meter in the subsequent weekday. Yes, he did win the gold for the 400 meter. He's not known for that. But in the end, for Eric, it was not about winning the gold, nor was it even sports or running. That's why he could step away from and not compete in the main event he was known for. There was a higher purpose. And there was an opportunity for him to fulfill that purpose in that one event for which he is known and for which he walked away and why we remember his name to this day. If heavenly glory, if the presence of God's perfections could not be displayed as part of his earthly achievement, he wanted nothing to do with it. Lydell would eventually return to China as a missionary. He would die as a prisoner in a China internment camp where he would even give his own sneakers to a shoeless prisoner there for his greater comfort. And the only reason you probably know of Eric Liddell is because of his denial of himself and for the gold in the hundred meter, because of a higher purpose to the glory of God to take the opportunity that was given to him at that moment in order to bring heaven's glory to the earth, to show the world of God's unique excellence on display through an earthen vessel because the character was there that would display the image of God. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat, or drink, or, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to bring heaven's glory to bear in your earthly life in the little circle that he's placed you in all of your decisions, in all of your activities in order to display the unique excellence of God's character, of his works, of his perfections, of his love, his truth, his gentleness, his tenderness. in the opportunity and the situation that he has opened to you at that moment. That's life. That's glory. That's how you live your life. That's your purpose. You live life to bring the display of God's presence and splendor into every situation. whether it's a big achievement that you're pursuing or the mundane routine in life, such as just eating and drinking. You need to be motivated by the glory of God to bring heaven's glory into the picture of your earthly activity. Your purpose in life is bringing God's heavenly glory down to the earth. The achievements you pursue here and the fruit of your life will outlive you In other words, if you, in what you pursue to achieve, is done for the glory of God, the final and the ultimate results will not occur in your lifetime. So don't place your sense of fulfillment on the conclusion of those things. You will not be so discouraged when your earthly dreams are shattered. because ultimately your achievement will not be fulfilled in this life nor will it be measured in this life or by your lifespan and that is why i've often said your life will not be measured by what you achieved in your lifetime but rather what you pursue with your life while here what is your pursuit Abraham pursued a city in faith that was not realized in his lifetime, and he is set up for our example to follow. See, it's faithfulness, not achievement, which is our objective. Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. And when you see the big picture beyond your lifespan, it gives the right perspective for the time that we now live here from our baptism to our home going in the grave. Jesus had no desire, it appears, it sounds like, to live a moment longer here on this earth beyond what he came for. He left glory to come here for a purpose, and when that purpose was done, He desired to return to that glory. And this is the proper view of life that will keep us from hanging on here too tightly to these things or trying to hang on too long. With the right perspective, we will not be controlled with fear or self-preservation of life if we see every opportunity to bring heaven's glory down here in my circle of influence that's why if you lose your life for Christ's sake you will find it gain it God's glory is that which is longed for whether it be here on the earth or your final resting place when you're done here on earth, but ultimately it's what we look for in the resurrection here. Glory. But another phrase or another word that is focused on in this text and the word that drew my attention to it this week because we have birth and we have death, but is the word life. It's glory, life. In John chapter 17, verse 3, it says, and this is eternal life. And then he goes on and he prays what this eternal life is that he means here, that they may know you and the only God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. This is eternal life, see? Life. Many people think wrongly about eternal life. They think eternal life is the place I go when I die. I go into eternal life. People often think in terms of heaven when they think of eternal life. And this thinking is wrong. It's not biblical. The term eternal here does not have to do so much with duration of life, but rather quality of life. Eternal life is nothing other than the life of God. And eternal life is defined here as to know God. This characteristic of knowledge is throughout the Old Testament, and wisdom is the tree of life to those who lay hold on her. Those, as the proverb says, would pursue wisdom as you pursue treasure. I would give up all my silver and gold, the, the Proverbs would say, in order to gain wisdom. With all of your understanding, get understanding. Proverbs 11.9, by knowledge the righteous are delivered. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. And Habakkuk speaks of this knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters do the sea. This is bringing heaven's glory down to the earth to cover the entire place. Now how is he going to do that? He's going to do that with life. This word to know, God, is this experiential knowledge. It's like a husband who knows his wife. It says, And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. It's that kind of experiential knowledge of an intimacy of heart, mind, and soul that a husband and wife can share in this oneness where the two become one flesh that God says this is eternal life when you know God. It is this Intimate, personal relationship with God. Eternal life is the enjoyment of God so that you fellowship with His glory. You partake of. You commune with. You participate in the splendid attributes. Now, he's the only one that's like it. He's got the unique excellence, but he's communicated this to his creatures and renewed us in the image of God in Christ Jesus. And so these communicable attributes are renewed in Christ, and in Christ we are partakers of his divine nature, as Peter would put it not that we become God, not that we become one essence and one substance, consubstantial, co-eternal with Him. No. It's because we partake of this in fellowship with His, his glory. We fellowship through this personal experiential relationship and knowledge with Him through Christ Jesus. And when we do that, our character is forged So that heaven's glory comes down to the earth through your character. Your life has been created for God's glory, you have been saved for God's glory, you were born for God's glory. And when your work here is finished and you die, you enter into God's glory and you can die unto God's glory. But while you yet live, you are to bring God's heavenly glory into this earthly state and this earthly sphere by how you live in your relationship with God. So fellowshipping with him, so intimately worshipping him, so integrally praying with him, so being conformed into his likeness, that the attributes of the Almighty God are brought forth and bear in every situation you live your life. That's what it means to when you pray, Hallowed be thy name. Prayer request comes right on the heels when God says, you know, you, you bless your enemies and you love them and you bless those who persecute you and you do all of these contrary things to human nature so that you might be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. And so when God gives you opportunity, when you say, hallowed be thy name, opportunity is coming for you to be part of the answer to his, your own prayer request. By the grace of God, you are to respond to a situation so that God's name may be hallowed in your life. In doing that, which by flesh you cannot, but which God has called you to, to show his glory here. Your whole purpose of life is involved in Habakkuk's vision when he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is eternal life. So fellowshipping with God in this intimate relationship, eternal life, so that His own attributes are brought to bear in your life here upon the earth, glory Life. Now, how do you do that? What is life's work and purpose here? How do I spend my life in doing that? And the answer is your sanctification. Not all your achievements, not all the results, not all the metrics that you can count up. It's your sanctification. More important than anything you can accomplish here on earth, more important than any achievement or goal is the development of your godly character in the context of your relationship with God and others. Every one of the fruit of the Spirit has to do with your relationship with God and others. The Ten Commandments, your relationship with God and others. So if you were simply to ask, Lord, what's what's your will for my life? It can be just summed up this way. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God. Your sanctification that's your that's the will of God for you well that seems right we want' to achieve this is what Jesus is achieving in you with the spirit your sanctification this is good works your sanctification does it depreciate any of those achievements that you do for the glory of God. But if the plowing of the wicked is sin, the difference between the plowing of the wicked and the plowing of the righteous doesn't have to do with the activity of their achievement or how many rows were plowed. It has to do with character by which it was plowed. This is what Jesus was praying for in verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified of the truth. So that he who is sanctified and he who sanctifies is one, as we read from Hebrews. And the fruit of the sanctification would be the oneness of God's people with him in a Trinitarian life. God was glorified in the Son. His knowledge was made known here. God's knowledge was made known here through His Son. And now God's knowledge is made known here through His Son's Bride, the body of Christ, the one He is united in two and one flesh, intimately separated, of which no man can separate. As we're one with Him, this is the way and God's glory will be known here upon the earth. And this is why discipleship and our own pursuit of holiness is so important here in life. Remember, it is the character of the kingdom that we see in the Beatitudes that God rewards. It is the meek that will inherit the earth. It is those of the character that God is working by His Spirit in them that have the blessings and that will change the world. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13, it says that love excels all of the virtues. Love is that which will be better than even the greatest achievement, even when you give your body to be sacrificed for somebody else. If you have not love, it's nothing. If you have faith to move mountains and have not love, it's nothing. Seeking the kingdom first with your life and God's righteousness is about your growth and godliness more than your earthly achievements. So that if you have the opportunity to achieve with the glory of God, so be it. But if you have the opportunity to fail in one of those achievements to the glory of God, so be it. You can do a good thing or a good work here, but in a wrong way or an ungodly character, and it will be nothing. Don't measure your life or ministry in terms of achievements. Don't measure your life in terms of earthly metrics or numbers of souls that are saved or, so, or lives that were saved or baptisms that were administered or, or whatever the metrics of life. Don't, don't measure your life this way. Don't measure your ministry that way. The measure of life, eternal life, comes in the quality of life not the quantity, how you live, your character, your integrity, your truthfulness, your faithfulness in doing the next right thing at any cost, your willingness to deny yourself the gold for a higher purpose of God's glory. Life is not about achievement or results, but bringing the presence of God into every situation. That's what your prayer life is all about. That's what worship is doing. We're in the presence of God, in the presence of His glory. That's what good works are about. This is why godly character is so important, so quintessential to everything else you do. You can do a right thing in a wrong way and. Not only not fulfill God's purposes, but you can blaspheme Him in it. You can do a good thing, but with ungodliness or poor character, it can be dishonoring to Him, not glorify Him. The ends never justify the means. Eternal life is about the enjoyment of God. The the joy that He gives to us in Christ in such a way that His character is forged into you through your fellowship with Him, your intimate knowledge with Him, as the two become one flesh, His glory begins to emanate from you. This is why Moses had to cover his face with a veil. It's the image here of what we are as we are in intimate relationship with Christ. Christ. So that the presence of God is brought to bear in every situation you find yourself here on earth. The battles that you face, the difficulties that you bear, the unexpected disappointments, the news that comes in the mail... These are all opportunities to display heavenly glory and bring it right down into the earthly sphere and how you respond in your character. The greatest trial our Lord would ever face was bringing heaven's glory to the earth. Right there upon the cross, when God was glorified in that event. Your shattered dreams, your difficult marriages, your struggling children, the failures that you sense, or the lack of achievement that you will never accomplish a sense of failure in your life by worldly standards is not the way to live or think about life. That's full of disappointment, discouragement. But eternal life is to know your God in Christ. And to bring His glory into your sphere by the way you respond in your character that he is working in you and through you by sanctifying you with his truth. Battles are the way of display. Trials are the ways of opportunity. And like the trial heat for your best event, which happens to be on Sunday, is going to be how God is glorified in the way that you respond. This is glory life. One day, the fulfillment of all your expectations and dreams that you pursue will be fulfilled and completed and consummated. You'll be satisfied. But today you can be satisfied if you live with this big picture in the light of God's glory coming to bear in every situation that God brings your way because He is sovereign over it all. You live your life faithful steward. Let him control the results, and you be faithful to respond to him with grace. Respond to your neighbor in love, and let him be glorified. Our Father, give us the grace to live this eternal life with great joy seeing the big picture of things far beyond our life, far beyond our death, and that we can see the glory of which Christ prayed for here, that we would be one with you in this Trinitarian life. And the glory that he longed to go back to after his earthly life was finished, that will be consummated as he comes back and brings it all here upon the earth. In the meantime, may we live according to your grace to to be about our part and extending your glory in our own little influence of life, in our own little circle that you've put us in. In every trial, every difficulty, every triumph, and every victory, may we live to emanate your perfections, your unique excellence, and how you respond, and how you think, and how you love, and how you are joyful in your holiness. And, and we pray that our lives would be conformed to the image of Christ in all these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.